Welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. This podcast explores what it means to make life less difficult for each other and for ourselves. We share stories of struggles and successes because we believe sharing our stories eases the difficulty of life. I'm Lisa Tilstra, your host. Let's jump in to today's conversation. My guest today is Nicole Webb. Nicole is a journalist, writer, and speaker. She's also spent more than 20 years in Australian television as a reporter, producer, and presenter. Nicole is a spouse who's moved abroad to support her partner in his career, sometimes known as a trailing spouse, although I don't love that term, being one myself. I first connected with Nicole through Facebook when someone learned about my podcast and said, you should talk to Nicole. I reached out and Nicole kindly was open to connecting with a total stranger on another continent. In our first conversation, however, we learned of many parallels in our life as expats, trailing spouses, professionals needing to reinvent ourselves repeatedly, and adventurers. Nicole and her husband moved from Australia to Hong Kong for their first overseas assignment in 2010 when she was pregnant with their daughter. The next move was even more challenging when in 2014, they went to Xi'an, China, a city of 9 million people that is one of the oldest and most revered cities in China, but where very few Westerners lived and very little English was spoken. Nicole captures her journey in her memoir, China Blonde. She writes in a beautiful, personal way with great humor, a must for surviving some of the expat challenges. Nicole also blogs at Mint Mocha Musings, and you can learn more about her adventures there. I highly recommend Nicole's book and her blogs and have included links in the show notes. Thank you, Nicole, for sharing with us today and also for capturing your experiences, both the joyful and the painful in your book. It is an insightful glimpse into life as an expat, as well as into the culture of China. And for those of us who share that title as expat, it is a wonderful reminder that we are not alone on this crazy and wonderful journey. Nicole, welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I'm so glad we finally get to do this. Yes. Thank you for your persistence in scheduling. It is always a little tricky. Um, and I'm thinking it's been a number of months and I can't even remember who it was that made it, left a message on Facebook and said, oh, you should connect with Nicole. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And I reached out and you were willing to just answer this complete stranger so- and say, okay, let's chat. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm always happy to chat to strangers and make new friends. So it's been really great. I'm just, yeah, I'm glad. Thank you for being patient with me rescheduling all the time. No worries. No worries. So Nicole, as we get started, I have built this podcast and the work that I do from a quote by Mary Ann Evans, which is, what do we live for if not to make life less difficult for each other? And I like to ask my guests, what What comes up for you? What resonates for you from this quote? Wow. I mean, that is such a big quote, isn't it? And I guess I I think of family, obviously, that always are there to turn to. Uh, For example, my situation where I was just telling you about the flooding in our house and, you know, mold issues. And of course, who do you text straight away? Um, Your family who are there for you and Mm -hmm. just telling someone else makes life less difficult. And then, of course, the expat journey, as we just mentioned, you know, saying goodbye to those friends who become family when you're overseas, 
you know, I think they make life so much less difficult in a foreign country when you, you know, you know no one, you don't know the culture, just having those familiarity, the friends. And yeah, to me, that's probably what comes up first. Yeah, yes. I, and I, I love it. I mean, and what you said about just even sending a, a message out to family or friends about what's going on makes it a little less difficult. Like they can't do anything. They can't fix it for us, but just even having someone to, to share whatever is happening. Yeah. I think that's it, isn't it? It's sharing. It's just sharing your problems, you know? Um, and that just lightens the load slightly, I guess, to have other people empathizing with what you're going through, even if, as you say, they are a million miles away and can't help. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, it's amazing that that power of connection, right? And just knowing, okay, I'm not alone. Somebody can at least empathize, even if it is from afar. Yes. Yes. It's so mm. special. Yeah. Yeah. Nicole, I'm curious in, in this, we've got um, a variety of life experiences that have some, some parallel journeys with being a Um, I hate the term, but the trailing spouse, right? Where we have moved different places around the world because of our husband's work, um, Mm -hmm. living the expat life. So you've, you've been through just countless um, challenging and difficult times in your life. And I'm curious when you think back on life, what would be one of the, perhaps one of the first times that you looked around and you thought, oh, wow, life is hard, harder than I thought it was going to be. You know, it's funny because I was just thinking about this in the car, um, driving back to the hotel where we're staying while our house is going to be um, demolished and fixed. Uh, And I thought, you know, life can be tough and unexpected, but that's life, isn't it? And I remember feeling, I guess, when we moved to China, because we'd lived in Hong Kong for four years. And while that was a bit of a culture shock and I had left my career and I was having a baby in a foreign country, Um, it was still quite westernised in Hong Kong. So I think then moving to the middle of China, where even though I thought I knew China and had been to China briefly, you know, a city of nine million, and I talk about that obviously a lot in the book, you know, no one really spoke English. Um, A lot of people had never seen a white person or a Westerner in the flesh. Um, So that was really daunting and scary. And I just can remember looking outside the hotel windows at that point, looking at this strange city and the strange things going on outside that weren't familiar to me, just thinking, wow, how am I going to get through this? You know, I know not a single soul here. Um, I can not speak Mandarin, <laughs> you know, and it seemed difficult those first few months. I remember texting friends and, you know, as you say, texting to share and, you know, having that connection. But it was just one of those times I thought this is really tough and I, how am I going to survive and have I bitten off more than I can chew? Yes. Yes. I mean, it is, it is a, I mean, for those who have, who have been to Hong Kong and and maybe to China, it's a it was surprising to me the contrast between the two. I mean, it's kind of like two different worlds, and you were really dropped into the middle of. Um, I, I mean, it, it sounds it's cliche, right? But like in the middle of nowhere, and yet it's so funny because it's a nine million, the <laughs> population of nine million in this city, and yet there's so. I think what part of what is so interesting is there's there's so much about China that we, from the 
Western world or, you know, from, from outside don't understand. I mean, I had never heard of Wuhan before COVID mm. popped up a couple of yeah. years ago, right? And that's a city of 10 million. Mm. And so, yeah, quite an experience to be dropped in. It is. I mean, I remember Wuhan was a place where we almost moved to before we moved to Xi'an. Um, and, you know, I don't even ever been to Shanghai, which is kind of a much bigger version of Hong Kong. Um, so I remember we had to fly up for the weekend to do a reconnaissance and see if we wanted to live there. And it was just so different. The culture, it was just, it was like being dropped on a different planet. Um, and I remember we came away thinking, I just don't think we're ready to do this. Um, but probably in hindsight, Xi'an wasn't much different. It was just that by the time we said yes to Xi'an, we were like, we've really just got to do this and go with it, you know. Um, and yeah, it was sort of like in middle of China, you know, sort of inland, um, flying over. It was a bit like, not the desert, but it was, I just remember looking outside the aeroplane and it was just this sort of gold brownie hue haze it just you know um landlocked um and the mongolian desert wasn't that far away it just seemed like i had gone you know so far away um (laughs) just so foreign to me it can almost feel like another planet Mm. yeah yeah and it it was you know and i mean it's obviously it's not and like you say so many we just don't know that much about china it's not a place a lot of westerners do um want to travel to um you know and it's a fascinating place but often i guess we only hear what you know we see in the headlines um particularly about the politics of the country it being a communist country um, the economy um you know what china's up to next but we never really hear much about the real people, the everyday life, what it's like for them, how they feel about living in China, what they think. So it was really quite an eye-opener to be there for, you know, almost three years and really come to understand the people and their culture and how they feel, how they think. Um, And it was just such an amazing insight and experience to have looking back. Yes. And and so so many times, right, these experiences of living in different countries, different places as an expat, it is, it's really easy to look back and see the gift in it. Um, And yet quite a different experience when we're there and getting settled. And I'm, I'm curious, what was it that prompted you to say yes? Um, And yep, let's do this. Let's go to Xi'an. Let's, let's have this adventure, change our lives, Mm. disrupt everything. (laughs) I think because we'd already done it once by moving from Sydney to uh, to Hong Kong. So that was the big moment where we said, right, you know, I had been in my career as a newsreader for 10 years at Sky News. We'd been married about a year. James was in hotels. And he said to me, we do get offered jobs, you know, come up and come up all the time overseas. And initially I'd sort of been reluctant to do it, thinking that, you know, my time had come and gone to live overseas. I was you know, well and truly a career person. I, uh, Yeah, and I sort of dismissed it, I guess, until one moment I just thought, you know what, we've got to seize the day, that whole, you know, carpe diem cliche as well. But I just thought if I stay here, I could be doing the same thing in another decade. I really thought need to step outside of my comfort zone. And James and I were both on the same page. I think we always liked, you know, to do things a bit differently in life and um, wanted an adventure. So hence 
we moved to Hong Kong and it really was a huge adventure. We had Ava there and we had four years there and it became home and we loved it. But then, of course, James in hotels, he was number two and he needed to get that general manager's role. So we were looking at other places in the world and China just kept popping up because, you know, they are just growing like a, you know, a weed. And there were just so many hotels that year in his company that it was almost impossible to avoid. So we got our heads around that. And for me, I thought, well, it's scary, but it's a bit of an adventure at the same time. And I think there's just something within both of us that were like, like to almost put ourselves out of our comfort zone as much as we almost hated at the time. Um, I guess it's something most expats share. It's something about, you know, step dipping your toe in those waters. And I think coming out the other side and saying we survived and we thrived. Um, yeah something in that <laughs> you'll probably relate. I I do. I'm curious for you, is that a trait that you, when you think about that desire to live a life that's a little different, um, really disrupt yourself? You'd been in your career for 10 years, very successful, but then say like, well, I mean, I could do this. I could be doing this in another 10 years, but why not do something different, disrupt things a little bit? Is that something that you feel like is part of your personality? Was that um, trained kind of in family environment? Did they encourage that when you were little? Where does that come from? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. And I've, I have come to the conclusion that I probably always wanted to live a life less ordinary. Because I remember, you know, when I was very young, and I thought I would go and live in Hollywood because that seemed like a life less ordinary. Um, And I wanted to do something different. And I remember talking to the school guidance counsellor when I was finishing school and obviously I couldn't act or sing. So Hollywood was way out of the question and she suggested a journalist. And to me, that was something different as well, because that was getting to go and interview, you know, lots of different people and see different, you know, all sorts of different stories. So I think, you know, it has always been in me. And I think it was probably, and it was encouraged. I think my parents were the same because we actually left New Zealand um, when I was a teenager to move to Australia. And while that's kind of very close, it was, again, a big move, I guess, at that age and to start a new school. So I think it's probably in my parents' genes as well to do that. Um, And definitely in James, who came from England as a backpacker at 25. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. It was definitely something in all of us, you know, that prompted us to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I have, I have this sometimes an internal struggle because here I am attracted to this quote of making life less difficult and simultaneously really attracted to challenge and disrupting myself and trying new things. And sometimes I get into a space where I'm like, I am making my own life so much more difficult. Why do I do this? I Well, yes, I ex- agree completely because there is a massive part of me that is also very much a homebody. And I really like my comfort zone and I like being planned and knowing what's happening. So I do grapple with that as well at times. I think, why am I doing it? Why would we do this? You know, everything is so crazy and busy. Why are we going to just make it much harder? So it is that as well, that kind of internal desire to just stay put and be calm but then there's also something that's like you've only got one life you know do you want to be living in the same house in another 20 or 30 years no we both always say no we don't want that even though it would probably be much easier yes yes 
No, it's, it is interesting when we have those <laughs> internal conflicts within ourselves. It's like part of us wants this part of us wants that. And yeah, I, I would love to hear some of your journey, Nicole, particularly in, in, in maybe with the first move to Hong Kong to leave a career. Um, it's challenging. I mean, I, in living in the, the expat world, this comes up, right. Where the spouse one of the partners in the relationship needs mm. to step away from their career and in order to support the others. And, and I, I know some, I have some friends who, you know, we call them the tandem couples that they both are, are working for the same company, you know, sometimes the state department in, in our world. And it, it also has its challenges and someone, someone ends up taking the lead. Oh, this assignment is more for him or her, or, you know, one yeah. or the other. And um, anyway, I'd love to hear just a little bit about your journey of how that was for you in stepping away and how you, how you managed that and and what your, I mean, back in the day, like what was your plan at that point? Like when you stepped away from your career and then moved to Hong Kong? Yeah. It was really quite difficult actually. Um, because I had been someone who had put so much into my career and, you know, having decided I was going to be a journalist at high school, went to university, decided I was going to be a newsreader at 18 and worked and worked and it never came naturally to me. So it was something that I really had to put so much effort into becoming that person. I would say it took 10 to 12 years, um, if not longer. So to give that away was tough. Um, And again, I guess it's that grappling with that and also having a life less ordinary and, and stepping out of your comfort zone. But then going to Hong Kong, the being in a, such a um, an exotic, um, different country kind of fed that desire uh, enough. But at the same time, I do remember because I also was pregnant. So that was, a, you know, a whole other world of having your first child, no family, mm-hmm. um, navigating that sort of in Hong Kong. Um, I think I felt like I did lose my identity uh, for quite a while because I'd only ever known myself as the newsreader, um, the journalist. Um, and then you have to look at yourself and say, well, who am I without all of that? And particularly when I'm changing nappies and singing nursery rhymes every day. And of course, James is off to his new job um, at the W Hotel, which is extremely busy and he's got to prove himself and you want to support him as well. But, you know, there are times when I was heavily pregnant at home and he's off having a great time and just thinking, how is this fair and what, what's happening here and why is this happening? Yes. Um, but I think eventually, you know, I, I, you have to find your own purpose, don't you? And that's tough as an expat and tough as a trailing spouse. And I think eventually once I'd had Ava, I sort of say to myself, you know, I'm not going to go chasing a newsreader job because it was all a bit too hard having a baby at the same time. I thought I'm going to give myself a break after 20 years in the media. So that kind of, I guess, comforted me for a little while and allowed me to have that six months to a year without being too stressed. But then there came a time where I was like, what am I going to do? And, you know, I got a few gigs doing MC work, um, which was great. And then I got a few um, jobs, media training, and they were quite sporadic, but that was enough to sort of feel like I still was using my experience. 
And it took a while as well, I guess, to realize what could I do? Because for me, I guess you pigeonhole yourself um, that you're only a newsreader and you forget about all those other skills that you've learned over the 20 years, you know, reporting, producing, writing, communicating. Um, it took me a while to, and a friend to tell me, hey, look at all of this experience that you've got. You're not just a newsreader. You don't just have to find a job doing that. You can do all of this other stuff. Um, and so I started writing um, some, I guess, articles for, for motherhood websites and travel websites. And eventually that led me to starting my own blog, um, which was just writing about adventures and living an expat life. Um, so all of that kind of helped to soften the blow, I guess, of giving up such a good career. Mm -hmm. I love how you mentioned having a friend share that perspective yeah. and that, you know, going back to your first comment of making life less difficult and having family and friends. And it's interesting how sometimes we can just only see one option in front of us. And this happens to me regularly. And then talking to someone, they're like, wait a minute, Lisa, you could do this and don't forget about this. And like, what about all of these opportunities? And I, I know there's times where I just feel yeah. amazed, like, well, of course. Why didn't I see all of that? I've been I so stuck, but it's crazy yeah. how our brain will do that. I know. And it's funny because I'm actually now in a role where I'm actually doing a lot of publicity for other authors, um, which was something I had never even thought of until I published my own book. And then people came and asked me to do it for them. And a friend had even suggested that. And I was like, I don't think so. But then looking at it now, it's actually the perfect role of all my experience because it's knowing the media landscape. It's knowing all of the journalists that, you know, I used to work with who are now in, you know, lots of great positions. Um, it's that writing and pitching. And it's also my love of books and, you know, the author world. So it's the perfect, you know, storm almost. But yeah, wow. I didn't even see that coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it's helpful to keep keep the unknown opportunities in mind. And I know it can be particularly difficult when, you know, moving every few years, mm -hmm. disrupting life and, and career. And yet there's just something really inspirational in hearing you say, well, what I'm doing now is something I never considered doing. And yet it's a great fit. And that can be the experience for, for lots it of people. Scary. Yeah. I mean, I think about it even now, if we do move overseas again, that little part of you goes, what about everything I'm doing now? How am I going to do that there? But you've got to sort of have faith that you will, you know, and these days, because we can sort of do anything from anywhere with technology, it does make it a lot easier for expats, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, like you say, I guess you've just got to keep those options open because you really don't know what's going to come your way and what's going to happen, even though it can seem like you're giving things up often new things come up as well that you, you know, you perhaps have hadn't even thought of. Yes. If you're, if you're willing to go here, I would love to hear a little bit about maybe lessons learned, even strategies developed for your marriage, for the stresses that come <laughs> along with <laughs> the moving, the settling in the you know, we, we land and our spouse who has the job, they go off and they're immersed in their world from, you know, the very beginning. And we are left to figure everything out and make sure, you know, 
kids have school and food and (laughs) just the basics of life. It can be incredibly stressful on relationships and on marriages. And Mm. yeah, I think it either makes you or breaks you, doesn't it? Um, Yes. That sort of lifestyle. And I think you just, you know, my biggest thing would be that you really have to be on the same page because if one of you is on a different page and has a different view of what life is going to be like for you as a family, as a couple, then I think it can go off the rails. Um, And I think to ensure that you are on the same page, James and I always seem to end up having a really big discussion about where we're at every six months or so. You know, life's busy and we're all, he's busy with work and we don't, we talk every day, but we often don't sit down and go, so what, how do we both feel about what's coming up next? You know, um, we had one of those chats just recently and it just kind of comes out of the blue, but it does seem to come about every six months or so where, you know, you do just have that real in-depth talk about what you are both feeling and where you're thinking you're headed and what you want to do. And I think that just helps to cement, okay, we're on the same page with this or perhaps we're not, but how do we get on the same page or how do we make sure both of us are feel filled with this decision or whatever we're doing. Um, So I think that's really key. Um, And then I think when you are in the country, the new country, obviously sense of humour is everything because things are going to go wrong. You're going to feel stressed. You're going to be like tearing your hair out. You're going to feel like crying a lot of the time and especially that, you know, the woman or the trailing spouse that is left and, you know, you probably feel more lonely than, say, the partner who's working because, they are meeting people, even if it is a real challenge as well. And, it, you know, it is. It's a different challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, you can just be sitting there thinking, where am I and how am I ever going to meet people and do I actually want to put myself out there and meet people again because it yes. is, you know, such an effort. Um, so I think a sense of humour is always good to have um, and I think the support of each other. And I was always grateful that James had realized how important my career was and so was very supportive of of me doing something as well you know in those countries um and even though a lot of time I probably wasn't bringing in any money (laughs) for a long time you know I was just sort of dabbling in things and a bit here and there um you know he was very supportive of that he knew what I'd given up and also that I was raising our daughter and you know helping her to fit in as well Um, So you do have to be supportive, be on the same page, you know, um, talk all the time. Um, Yeah, I don't think you want to go off on separate tangents and and then start leading those separate lives because I think that's where the danger comes in, doesn't it? Um, And you have that danger of drifting apart. Yes. And I mean, let's be honest we have that danger of drifting apart, even if we're not moving around the world. Um, And I think that, yes, yes. And I think that the, the expat life, the international moves, the career changes add complexity Mm. to Mm. keeping that relationship on the same page. And yeah. I think remembering why you decided to do it in the first place, you know, Mm. and I always think we decided to move to Hong Kong because we both wanted that adventure. Mm. Um, We wanted a different life. We wanted something exciting, but we also wanted to help James progress his career for us as a whole family so that we could have the future we wanted, you know, and even that, even when thinking about what our future holds now, it's, 
yes, I'm thinking about my career and what fulfills me, but as James is the major breadwinner, it's also like, how far does he go? What do we want from our future? And how far does he need to go to give us that? Mm. Or are we happy at this level? So it's just remembering why you're doing it, I guess. Mm -hmm. That is a really, really good perspective. And um, yeah, I think very helpful. I'm also intrigued that you mentioned the six, six months and how you seem to kind of sit down with James and have a big conversation every six months. Right before we moved for the first time for our first overseas assignment, I met a woman who had been in the foreign service with her family for tw over 20 years. And she said, my husband and I have a rule that we cannot get divorced six months before a move or six months after a move. And, you know, I, I heard it and I was like, well, that's kind of interesting and a little bit strange, you know, to my ears. But then I shared it with my husband and I said, you know, there might be some, <laughs> there might be some mm. wisdom in this. And we have, it makes sense. now yeah. that we're, you know, in our fifth overseas assignment, we have, we have kept to this rule and it is so interesting, the stress that builds in the six months before a move, oh, the six months yeah. after a move and yeah. giving ourselves that grace period of, yeah, life's going to be hard. Yeah. Marriage is going to be hard <laughs> yes. and there's external forces at play. Yeah. Don't make any huge decisions about I staying know. together or not in this time period. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's accepting that things will take time to settle and it, there's nothing you can really do about it other than go through that period. And, yes. you know, until that time comes where you do feel like you are at home in this foreign country, um, you can't speed it up. Um, you just have to go through it, don't you? And, you know, those three to six to nine months can be excruciatingly tough. But then there comes that sweet spot, doesn't there, where you go, ah, okay, I feel like this is kind of my home now. You know, you're flying back in after being to your home country and you're like, this is not so bad. And suddenly you're like, it's okay. We've, and you know, you've survived that bumpy period, that adjustment period, haven't you? Yes. Yes. I, I, I'd love to hear a story because what comes up as you're sharing that is moments in those first, you know, months where you have these small successes. And I'm curious for you, when you think back to your time in either Hong Kong or, or Xi'an, what were what were some of those first moments of oh that was that was a really big deal even though like it's often something that's sort of minor in life but it feels like yeah. a really big deal <laughs> yeah i think definitely in xian i can remember distinctly i think when i arrived in xian i remember i didn't really want to meet anyone and that sounds terrible and i it's not that i didn't i just felt like in hong kong i'd gone through all of that and i'd met my expat friends and i had my tribe and I wasn't going to, you know, be able to um, equal that anywhere else. You know, I couldn't replace those friends. So I was like, you know, it's very difficult to put yourself out there, isn't it? And meet new people. And I just thought, I'm just not going to do it. And I, you know, and Ava wasn't at school for about six weeks. 
And then, you know, there comes a time, I think two months in, I thought, you know, I really do need to find somebody to have a coffee with to survive this. Um, You know, it's silly. I've got to put myself out there. And I found someone on Facebook and her kids went to the same school as Ava. So I just remember the relief of seeing an Australian um, called Nicole as well. And I just came across her on Facebook. I can't even, I think she commented on a blog post I'd posted on a Shianese Facebook page. And I was just like, remember stalking her on Facebook and seeing that she looked really nice. And I thought, oh my God, that's just someone, you know, it's someone that's like me um, in Mm. this place. And I just thought I could just breathe a little bit easier. (laughs) Yes, that resonates. So I, you know, in reading your book, that, that transition really stood out to me where you felt like, I don't, I don't want to put myself out there. I don't want to make friends. And I have noticed over my years of being an expat, I've gone through phases of sort of having that, but I, I know myself enough that that's not an option for me. Like I need connection. However, I've, I've seen it in, in other friends or other acquaintances that I meet. And I, at first, I think when I met people who were kind of closed off, I thought, they don't like me. What's wrong with me? Right. And then over time, I realized that it is actually quite easy to emotionally close ourselves off because of the repeated Mm. work of not just getting to know people, but then also the the same goodbye. Mm. Yeah. Um, What? Yeah. What? It's almost like, you know, when you make friends with these people that you are going to have to say goodbye at some point, because you yes. know that wherever you are, you're not staying there for the long term. So, yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Because you want to become really good friends, but at the same time, you're like, this is going to have to end <laughs> at some mm. point. But I guess looking back, you know, I think I'm so grateful for the friends that I've met, you know, and in Hong Kong and Xi'an. Um, and they're some of the best friends of my life. And, you know, we're going to be friends for life. It doesn't end when you leave the country. It's just that you're not living in each other's pockets like you are in expat life. Um, And I imagine sometimes what life would be like if I hadn't put myself out there and met those people. Mm. And, you know, I would be much less poorer for it. So, you know, you have to be thankful and you really have to do it, don't you? And you have to think, who am I going to meet in this new country? It could be someone, you know, amazing that I am just best friends with forever. Or maybe maybe you don't meet a best friend, but you meet some amazing people at the same time that teach you different things. Yeah. Yeah. I like that perspective too, of just you're just because you move and you're not living in the same place. Obviously the, the friendship shifts and changes but it doesn't, it doesn't negate all of the benefits of it. And even if, I mean, I, I make some friends that we just don't, we don't stay in touch, mm. but were we to cross paths and see each other, I know it would just be so wonderful. And this has happened where, yes. oh, Hey, I'm traveling yeah. through. Can I, can I, yes. can we grab dinner? And it's just a delightful two hours that yeah. we get to spend together. Because um, you have those memories, don't you? So, yes. you know, I mean, you're right. There's lots of friends we don't talk every day. We don't message, but we see each other occasionally on social media. But I know we we share those amazing memories that we had, that, that there's that bond, isn't there? So that, yes, if you were to cross paths in the same city, yeah, you would catch up for a coffee or dinner or whatever it was, and that would be amazing because mm-hmm. you've got that shared um, history together. 
Mm. And then there are those, like you say, that you are bonded with for life and, you know, you still message every day. And yes, it's not the same and you miss them terribly. But like you say, it doesn't take away what you had together. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious if you found your skills as a journalist beneficial for your life as an expat. (laughs) Maybe because I ask a lot of questions. (laughs) So I'm, you know, naturally curious by nature. I'm usually, I do ask a lot of questions of people because I'm interested, you know, in people's lives. And um, so probably that does, did help to that degree um, because, I, you know, I want to, I'm curious about people naturally. Um, and it definitely helped in China um, when I decided to write my book because I wanted to interview a lot of locals um, to really find out what their perspective was was from all different walks of life from young to old. Um, and while I needed a translator for a lot of it, um, it was great to pull out those old interviewing skills and, you know, sit across from, you know, a 90-year-old Chinese man and ask him about life in a, you know, bygone era. So, yeah, yeah. I think so. And really what a, what a privilege to sit down with yes. a 90-year-old man yeah. in China and ask yeah. about those. Yeah, someone who was in the war and, you know, was, um, you know, when it was just so freezing cold in the snow and they were on donkeys and, you know, so the Mao revolution and what that was like to go through that. Um, it was just fascinating to hear these stories from these people. So I do feel really lucky and privileged and honored that they wanted to speak to me. Yeah. And they probably didn't even know what book I was writing or understand, you know, and won't probably ever see it being there. Right. So, yeah, it was really great that they gave me that time. It struck me as I was reading your book in those moments that you were going and talking and interviewing that there's I, I guess the question that came up for me is how can how can those of us who are not journalists <laughs> not writing a book, not doing the research, tap in to those skills, you know, and, and to, you know, I don't need to be writing a book to sit down and, and say, Hey, no. can I ask you about life? And can I learn from you? Yeah. I think, I think that's just one of the greatest things you can do when you go to another country or a culture, I guess it's because it's so easy to just stay in your expat circle, isn't it? And to connect yeah. with those like-minded people from your own country or similar countries. Um, and it's a lot harder to connect with others, especially if there's that language barrier. Yeah. Um, so I think it really is important to try and make an effort to really step outside and talk to the locals if you can, you know, um, even if it's, just, if it's just one or two locals, you know, and we were lucky that um, one of my best friends became a local Chinese girl and she was very westernized because she had lived she was married to a Dutchman but and her English was of course amazing but we all I got to see both sides you know I got to learn all about her life growing up in China that way and you know it just gives you a whole new perspective on the country that you're in and the history and the people and I guess it helps you tolerate more too if you are you know sometimes you can feel so frustrated and impatient because it's difficult in a different language and everything's hard and you can get really annoyed and just think, oh, my God, what is this country I'm in? Yeah. <laughs> so if you can kind of understand a little bit about why they are like they are, what their history is, what's made them be like this, then that helps you as well to kind of be more understanding. Yes. 
so much so. Yeah. And, it, and it's so interesting, right? Because I think we, we can go in without even realizing the judgments and the expectations that we have based yeah. on our, our own culture. And those yes. things are just ingrained in us. They're at an unconscious level. And then we pop into a different culture and everything is strange and annoying and frustrating. And yet it's all normal for the people living there. <laughs> Absolutely. And they're looking at you like, what's wrong with you? Yes. You know, why are you the weird white woman with all those shopping bags and what is in them and what are you <laughs> buying? And, you know, you're the strange one, but when we're looking at them like they are, you know, it's just, yes. you just it's different cultures, isn't it? Yes. And I guess that's what the amazing thing that expat life does is it allows you to step into those cultures even for a short time. Yes. I remember the moment the Philippines was our first overseas assignment. And about a year in, I was teaching a class for at the at the embassy, but all of the participants were Filipinos who were working at the embassy. And we were talking about communication and body language. And something came up about personal space, which is really important to Americans and a lot of Western cultures. And this woman who was probably about 50 and had worked for the American embassy for over 10 years raised her hand and she's like, What? is this thing personal space and i was like oh hold on you don't you don't know what personal space is let me explain okay so let me explain this and light bulbs going off all around the room of all these people and i was like i finally got it because in i mean and now i've realized in so many countries china included right there is no personal space no there's no, no privacy we live on top of no. each other there's no space to spread out so they had no concept and it was super helpful to me because I was like, okay, when I get, you know, jammed in the corner of the mm. elevator, <laughs> I'm like, surely nobody else can fit. And they're shoving five and more people into the elevator more in, yeah, on the train or wherever you are. And it's just a crush of people. And you think yes. I'm just squished in or in queues and they're pushing <laughs> in and, you know, it's survival of the fittest, but you, we obviously, we're not used to that, you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it was so helpful. Every, everybody I met that was moving to the Philippines, I was like, just know there is no such thing as personal yeah. space here. And that will help you make it a little less difficult moving here. Just it's it, it like doesn't when exist. we went, I know, I think, um, you know, when we went to Ikea that time and she <laughs> just opened and we went to have a look because it was a, you know, a, a Western um, or, you know, Northern European um, brand and there were all these local Chinese people and they were lying on the beds sort of resting and they were sitting at the tables the furniture that had tags on you know having a little picnic they were just treating it like a big family day out like it was yes. their home and it just took us back like what are all these people they're just sort of snuggled up on the couch and <laughs> but for them you know this is like a great day out because they're all living on top of each other in these tiny little houses. This was lots of space. Um, and, you know, it was, they could trial out these, this furniture, this Western style furniture. <laughs> and it was air conditioned uh, on a boiling hot day. Yes. Oh, Nicole, I laughed so much reading <laughs> that story in the book because we lived in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and there was an Ikea there. And we only went one time, but it was on a weekend and families are there. Kids are playing on everything. And I just laughed. I'm like, yes, this is, <laughs> this is the family outing to Ikea yeah. and it's a whole yeah. day and it's like entertainment for the kids. Yeah. And 
<laughs> in the playrooms, everyone's down on the floor with the kids playing with all the toys and yes. you know, doing their makeup in the makeshift bathrooms. <laughs> yeah, so, so funny. I would, I'd love to hear from you having lived in, in China for, for three years there. What are some things that you learned that you think would be helpful for either Westerners or just anybody, I mean, who hasn't had the opportunity, who may not have the opportunity to visit China? What are, what are some of the things you learned and you think would be good for others to know about? I think it's such a big topic, but I guess, I mean, there's so much, but I think probably the fact that so much of China is in poverty. You know, we think, you know, that there are, I think, 300, last count when I was there, there was something like 356 cities and there's probably many more now because they're just growing overnight and things change overnight in China. Um, my husband just showed me last night a, sh- a picture of the hotel we were in and that whole road that was out the front of it is gone and it's all paved and shopping centres have gone up and, and things literally change in a week. Um, and I just think that, yeah, a lot of, you know, there are so many small villages Um and there is a really extreme, as you would see in the Philippines and, and a lot of Asia, that that difference between rich and poor is so extreme. You know, you'll see a Ferrari with a rattly old three-wheeler rusty bicycle next to it. Yeah. So there's that real, um, yeah, opposing, I guess, there. Um, and I think a lot of China is, is so much of their behaviour is based on their history and um, the fact that 20 or 30 years ago, um, you know, they, they didn't have enough to eat. Um, mm. They would greet each other by saying chilama, which is have you eaten, not how are you? Oh. Um, you know, they didn't have cars 20 or 30 years ago. It was all bicycles. Um, so like you say, there wouldn't have been traffic lights um, or crossings, which is why the, the traffic is just so chaotic. And, mm. you know, there are 10 lanes, there are no lanes, but they're all merging into each other and beeping their horns as they go is just merely a a courtesy to say I'm coming through so it's just constant horns and the same I think in the Philippines Mm. um you know and I think just remembering what they've gone through as a country and that they really have only developed in the last sort of 20 to 50 years um and that it has changed so so much it's unparalleled I think in any other country in the world um and you know also that while they are a communist country um they most of the everyday people i'm sure a lot of the university students and that obviously are very educated and know what's happening but those older generations um it's all they know and they are they don't feel like they're brainwashed to think a certain way you know they look up to the government they look up to president xi he's very revered by a lot of the country um you know, because they see that he's lifted them out of poverty. Um, you know, that 90-year-old that I talked to, he said he lived in a mansion, even though it was sort of a run-down old apartment, but he mm. could send his his children or grandchildren to university. That was such a massive thing. Mm. Um, so it really is just knowing where they've come from as a whole country, I think, and trying to understand that. Um, when we're looking at them through that lens of politics and the economy, they have a burgeoning economy. They are the second biggest economy in the world, but that doesn't mean they're a super rich country, you know, within, you know, um, Mm -hmm. there are super rich people, but it's a really small percentage. 
it's interesting thinking about the drastic change and development that has happened in just the span of a few decades there. Mm. And Mm. I think about it, I was just having this conversation yesterday with someone where we're talking about the human brain and we still tend to think in very tribalistic ways and protective of our own things, even though we live now in a world that is globalized and we're connected and, and we don't need to act like we're in a little tribe of 50 to 100 people and protect our own. And and yet we still, our brain hasn't evolved to keep up with the technology. And, you know, for most of us in the the Western world, that's happened over the last couple of hundred years. Yeah. And then to say, okay, well, what happens when you condense that into Mm. just a few decades and how do, how do people. And that's China, you know, that is China, what we have achieved, you know, in England and Australia and America over a few hundred years, they've done literally in 30 or 40 years. So, you know, they've just, they've all got phones now. But I think when I arrived, you know, it was just, they were just sort of coming in, um, you know, and things are, they are just, and they adapt to new technology overnight as well. So they probably are more um, a fay with technology today and, and use it more in their everyday lives than we do. But because they are just constantly adapting to the, these new changes and China is constantly keeping up and changing now because it can. But for so many years, it, it wasn't like that. Mm. Um, and, and also, I think people forget that well, what shocked me is when I went to Xi'an and I said that we had come from Hong Kong, which I would expect that they would sort of know, most people, locals, had never even been to Hong Kong. So they really have no idea what it's like. And at the time, there was a lot of um, big issues going on in 2014 with protests um, and they had no idea because, A, it's not in their papers or it's not portrayed in that way. They had no idea that, you know, there was such a great divide between Hong Kong and China and that there was a, a quite a hostile attitude from Hong Kong people to mainlanders. Mm. Um, they weren't aware of that at all because they don't see it in their media um, and they've not ever travelled to these other places in China or Hong Kong. Um, so, they, you know, they have no clue. So that was quite an eye-opener that they didn't, They a lot of them have never been out of Xi'an. Yeah. Yeah, and they love Xi'an. It's like they're so proud and so patriotic wow. of their city, you know. And it's like, and you should love it as well. And when are you coming? And they often ask me now, when will you be moving back? <laughs> because they just assume that one day we will return. Wow. Yeah. Speaking of the history, the I've I've been to Beijing. That's the only place I've been in China. But I have to say, the thing that really stood out to me going through the National Museum, going to the Great Wall, the thousands of years of history. Mm. And I'd be curious, though, like, what, what was your thought? I mean, I, having grown up in America, we're, you know, like, really proud of our 200 and some year old country. And I'm like, we are just an infant compared to this history yes. that goes back thousands of years and the dynasties. Oh. And yeah, oh, it's, it's a minefield. And you know, um, just to learn about it all, you know, and there was a museum underneath our hotel where we lived, which was just an indication of how important that history is. And of course, the terracotta warriors are in Xi'an. So there are a lot of tourists that come to see those. And, you know, they were buried underground, these life-size clay warriors um, for thousands of years. And they were built, it was a mausoleum built um, by the Emperor Qin. Um, 
to protect him in his afterlife. And, and, and hundreds of thousands of people died. I mean, I can't remember the exact figures now because it's been a while since I was sort of studying all of that. But so many people died making the, this mausoleum of clay figures and houses and things, thrones and palaces underground for this man when he died, which he ended up dying of mercury poisoning, um, which he took as a longevity potion. Oh, <laughs> um, wow. And, and then they were unearthed in 1974 by a farmer who was digging a well or something and they found these pieces of pottery which turned out to be, I can't remember how many soldiers there are, but there's three giant pits, like giant plane hangers filled with these um, warriors and each one is different. Um, and they were painted bright colours, but obviously that has um, evaporated over the years, but they are bringing in new technology where they can uncover those colours. And so when you go wow. there and see it, it's just quite fascinating and, you know, this is all over China, the history, and it's so important to them as well. And they know so much about it, I guess, because they are educated from such a young age and it really is drilled into them. But it's just so important, each dynasty and how it impacted the country. Yeah. Yes. And it, it just seems like it has, I think it, I don't know in how to put words to it, but it seems like it's it's valuable to just recognize the impact that that has on a people, on a country, because so many other countries in the world have are are, are so young and yes. yeah, you know, obviously we we all have histories that go back you know thousands of years, and yet the modern day boundaries, mm. the modern mm. day mm. geopolitical countries yeah. are quite young, and yet China stands out as one that. Mm. And I think that is so embedded in them as a culture and all of those traditions and customs stem from that history and things that they do today. It's really still so much a part of their daily lives. You know, there are so many rituals and um, customs and, you know, just things that have come about from things that happened thousands of years ago. So you really do have to, you can't avoid it when you're in China. You know, it just becomes part of daily life, you know, and things that you do and drinking warm water because, you know, it really, cold water is no good and for your body and the yin and yang of everything has to be in complete harmony. Um, you know, that is just part of every day. You know, hospitals have traditional Chinese medicine um, as well you know, which is sort of seeping into our Western worlds now, but that's just being part of their, their health um, system forever. You know, Chinese medicine is what you, your first go-to point, I guess. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. You had multiple <laughs> stories in your book about <laughs> the going to the hospital and the acupuncture and things, but I mean, what, what is your take on, I mean, what, what value and healing did you find from some of those ancient Chinese medicines? Which ones did you just kind of feel like, okay, like probably didn't do anything, but it doesn't hurt anything. Like, <laughs> did you land on all <laughs> of that? It's hard to know. And I still don't know, but I, you know, um, I went, I think I remember I went to an acupuncture there and, 
you know, I, I wrote about that in the book, as you know, the, the doctor was just so kind. And I remember going there and I was terrified because I thought, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. You know, I've obviously you had a very brave. In Western country. Very brave. And <laughs> I went by myself, so I didn't have a translator. And, um, you know, I was told they could speak English and they really couldn't. And I'm trying to find my Chinese words, which obviously they never come out when you're in a situation where you never. need them. Yes. Suddenly your mind goes blank and you think, oh, mm-hmm. my God, I can't think what I'm supposed to say. Um, and I'm on this bed and they get out these huge needles, which um, really <sighs> did hurt a lot more than the Western ones that I had been used to. And then they got out this sort of cigar that was sort of smoking and wielding it over my body. And I thought, what is this? You know, and I'm sort of so hot and sweaty. And I just thought, oh, what's happening to me? But then, you know, I finally, they had finished and I got up off the bed and they, I went outside and they were waiting for me patiently. And then they wanted to take the obligatory photo with the strange blonde woman. And then he had prepared lunch for me, which just about knocked me over. You know, I was like, wow, you know, this doctor has made all these um, traditional Chinese dumplings and noodles. And there's this feast for me on the table, which was just so wonderful and lovely. And they were just so respectful, even, you know, of my culture and who I was and the fact that I didn't really know much about it. And they wanted to show me and embrace me, which was, you know, always such a wonderful feeling there is that you never felt like they were being hostile towards you. Mm. I always felt really safe in China um, and Hong Kong. And, you know, I always felt like the people were really warm and friendly. Um, Even, you know, Initially, obviously, you know, there were, it was a bit daunting and overwhelming because you would go outside and everybody is staring at you, especially with a three-year-old blondie um, yes. towing behind you. Um, you know, it was everyone wants to take pictures all the time, so it's like being papped by, you know, you get a feeling of what a celebrity might go through. You got your um, Hollywood after all. I know. <laughs> I used to laugh at that. I'm Brangelina, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, I eventually you sort of do get used to that and you don't really notice it, but you know, I think their intention was always good, even when they were taking photos or, you know, pushing their little boy or girl in to have a photo with Ava or, you know, um, it's harmless, you know, it's innocent, um, fascination, I think. How did you handle the, I think for me, sometimes I go to a different country, especially when um, when I'm living here and I just want to be treated normally. And yet I'm not normal. I'm not part. I'll never be treated like a local. How did you handle that? Because there's a part of me that's like, uh, don't treat me differently. But then I also want to be gracious and accepting mm. the. It's frustrating, isn't it? it? It's hard because no matter what you do, um, I think there is always going to be a barrier, even if you learn the language. Um, and as you, you know, you learn about their culture, you know, like my hairdressers, I became really good friends as much as you can be with someone who doesn't speak your language. Um, and you both speak a bit of their, each other's language, but we became friends, I guess, you know, we thought of each other as friends, um, but it's still frustrating because you, you still never really quite know what they're thinking or, you know, you're always on the outside looking in, aren't you? Um, And that can be quite difficult, I think, which I guess is why you then need that expat family um, to sort of lean on and talk to about that because they're all in the same position as you. So that does 
help, I think, to have each other, even if it's just a handful of people or one or two people. Um, and I guess you've got to take it for what it is. You know, I look back at Galay, the hairdresser, and we don't really text anymore. We did when I first left, but he doesn't understand what the West is like. He's never been anywhere. Uh, I don't really understand what his life is like at home, but we had a friendship and Mm-hmm. I was grateful for that friendship we developed. He took me for coffee once and that meant a great deal. You know, I think that's as close mm-hmm. as you can get. Um, so, yeah, I think we appreciate each other for what we are. But, yeah, you are always just one step removed, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, and that I, I think what comes to mind for me as you're sharing that and the val- highlighting the value of the expat friends because you have that connection. There's the phrase, it takes a village comes to mind. Right. And we often use that with takes a village to raise a kid. And and yet it it almost, it takes a village to really find um, success in this sort of Mm. lifestyle. And so you need different people and it's, it's incredible and really special to become friends with locals where we live. And yet there's, there is, still a disconnect. So having mm. expat mm. friends, having our family and, you know, different people, but it, that that's what comes up for me is it. Yeah. It you, you, I guess it's that friendship. Every person sort of it is something, means something different to you or brings yeah. something different into your life. Yeah. And yeah, it does become a whole village of people that sort of support you and keep you going mm-hmm. um, through these transitions and changes. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would be curious to hear a little bit about your transition back to Australia, because that is something that is also talked about in the expat world of we get used to living overseas Mm. in foreign countries, being treated differently. And then we go back home and we're just back. And and that that transition can be surprisingly challenging. I know. And just talking about it with you on this podcast today, it takes me back. You know, I haven't thought about it for a while and I haven't, you forget those feelings that you had living overseas. So it just brings it all up again, talking to you and what it was like and how tough it was, but also how rewarding it was. And I've been back in Australia now for five years, which has flown by. Um, but yes, it was really weird coming back because it's almost so easy that you can just go to the local doctors or the hairdresser or the supermarket and you can get whatever you need. And it's just simple. You've got a car, you can drive anywhere. You can talk to anyone. You can ask anyone for directions. Um, But at the same time, you're with a whole lot of people that really don't understand what you've just been through. Um, And you want to sort of talk to them about it because you want to keep those memories alive. Um, But there's only so many times you can tell them what you went through and how life was and then they really don't want to hear much more of it because you know if someone hasn't been through it you know they they, it's hard for them to really go there with you um so I think it takes time to settle back in as well and to realize that you um your old friends are still there but a lot of them you know haven't don't really understand what Mm -hmm. that time was like for you um I remember for Ava, a lot of people would always say, wow, she must be so happy to be back to her normal life again. And I'm like, but this is not her normal life because she was born in Asia. Asia is what she knows. Um, Her favorite food is, you know, dim sum and rice and eats with chopsticks. You know, this is 
abnormal. You know, she was shocked at how blue the sky was and how the grass was so green and there were flowers and you could just sit in the grass and, you know, little things like that. And, you know, the lack of people, I guess, you know, you'd go out at night at 10 o'clock at night in Asia, there are just people everywhere. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Australia, everything shuts down, you know, the cafes <laughs> close at three o'clock or whatever. So it is, it's a big adjustment on many different levels, I think, um, from being back with friends and family. Um, and there are so many great things about that. Um, and I think you do almost gravitate as well to to other expats that have lived overseas and for a while to sort of feel like you can talk about your experience with each other and hold on to it for a bit longer because I think you get really scared that you'll forget that experience and that it won't have meant anything or, you know, um, which is kind of why I wrote the book as well because I wanted to really have something tangible um, that was that that life for us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we may go overseas again, um, never say never. I, it, with James and hotels, it's a very likely thing. So mm-hmm. it, it's, yeah, you have to think about that all the time, don't you? It's always in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And I think it's interesting. One of the themes that I hear of people that move back home, or I've even experienced just on trips back for visits, you want to share because there's so much that has happened, right? And 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 there's a lot of change, I think, that happens inside us when we mm-hmm. live in these different places. And then we go back and we we start talking and sharing stories and you just see people's eyes glaze over. Right. And it can be so disappointing. <laughs> like, oh, they don't want to hear. <laughs> Who can you I talk to? You want them to, to be as enthusiastic as you are, you know? Yes. Um, which is why you're so grateful for those friends that actually did make the trip to see you in those places. And they could understand a little bit about what life was like for you. You know, yes. a lot of people came to Hong Kong, obviously not many people came to China because it wasn't mm-hmm. as exciting, but a really good friend of mine did. And that was so special because she's been there. She's seen it with her own eyes and she's experienced it. So she knows that side of me Yes, and my family, of course, you know, that saw that. Yes. That is, that is so true. And I think, um, yes, I want to emphasize that in case anybody's listening and considering going, visiting friends who are living overseas, please go and visit. It is so special. And it has been one of the most difficult things. So we moved here to Sri Lanka in November of 2020 in the middle of COVID. And so far we've not had any visitors and everywhere else we've lived, We've had visitors. We lived in the Netherlands. There we had visitors, like we were and you know, bed and breakfast aside of yes. everything else. <laughs> and and it was so wonderful to have so many people come and step into our world. And especially living in the more unique places. Like when we lived in Saudi Arabia, we didn't have as many visitors, but we had a few. And boy, that was so special. And we still oh. talk about it with them. Yes. Um, you yes. know, probably very similar to to when you lived in yeah. China. And with COVID, it it really has disrupted that. And, and that's one of the things that we feel so disappointed about. And it's been really, it's made this transition and living here more challenging because yeah. we're like, oh, we have such a nice place and we have the guest room and I nobody know. comes. And you're all set up and you're ready <laughs> yes. for those visitors yes. and they can't come or that, you know, yeah, that would be really difficult because I think when you hear that someone's coming over, it's always so exciting. I mean, Hong mm-hmm. Kong was like a revolving door, you know, because everyone wants yes. to come to Hong Kong. Um, but as you say, somewhere like Xi'an or, you know, where you are, 
when you get those, you know, one or two visitors that come, it's like, wow, I get to show you this life that I'm living, the good and the bad and the crazy and the fun. And, yes. you know, someone else can just ha- understand a little bit about your world. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, you mentioned in your book when, you're, when your mom came for the first time, mm. it was like, oh, I get it. This yes, is really hard. It's just because affirming. She had been thinking it was like Hong Kong. <laughs> and I'm like, it's not, it is, but it's not, you know, right. and it was so hard to explain to her on a text message. Um, and until she really got there and was like, wow, okay, I get it. I see mm-hmm. what you're up against here. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's fantastic. And what an experience, but I get that it's hard, really mm-hmm. hard. Yeah. yeah there, there's something validating and affirming. And I feel like it gives us strength to, yes, okay, Keep I'm not going. crazy. I'm not just imagining the challenge. Yeah, I'm not just being a spoiled expat, you know, yes. living the life and being, you know, intolerant. So you, you get that validation that, yes, this is a really tough place to be, yes. you know, because of all these different things. And yeah, like that just allows you, I guess, to keep going and hang on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Nicole, I am so grateful to have this conversation and just appreciate, I, I really, I'll, I'll provide links to your book and, and website wow. and, and things in the show notes, but um, really appreciated reading your book. And I, I, I mentioned this when we first jumped on before recording, but you, you end it with saying goodbye. And, and I ended the book in tears <laughs> because I've already, I mean, I've had to say goodbye so many different times and um, already said goodbye to one of, you know, my dearest yeah. friends that I've made yeah. here in Sri Lanka. And this is part of the life of, of expats too, where, know. you know, I have another friend leaving next month, sort mm. of unexpectedly. Yeah. And um, and it happens quickly often, doesn't it? Yes, yes. And I think I knew every time I read the ending of the book, I cried too. So I knew that it must have that impact and that feeling because it didn't matter how many times I went to the very end and read that last bit, I could feel, you know, the clenching in the heart, you know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I know I think many expats, well, every expat would have felt that at some point in their journey. Yes. And I also really believe that the sadness is a reflection of the beautiful times and, mm. and kind of going back to that perspective of, you know, some people kind of wall themselves off and don't want to open yeah. up to that emotional challenge. I just feel like there's, there's so much beauty and joy to be had, whether we know someone for years or whether it's just mm. for a matter of months that those those difficult feelings, the sadness, the tears have to be viewed through that yeah. lens of I wouldn't feel sad if I hadn't have had the yeah. wonderful times and the meaningful exactly. connections. It's like that. It's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. It's yes. very much that, isn't it? You've got yes. to look and think, wow, it was amazing. Yes, it was heartbreaking, but you you know, what you got out of it was so much more. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for writing this book. It is really uh, wonderfully written and I think just um, a a beautiful insight into expat life. And um, I really appreciate you sharing. Thank you for having me. It's been really nice to just 
chat again. It's been a while since I've done a podcast and it's just been good to go over all of those stories and talk about that life again and with someone that understands. So thank you. 